session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Dolakri, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show, or suggest topics or books for the program, and the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes and Spotify. Again, our studio number, 310-441-0555. Let's get into the books of the week. The book for this week that I'll talk about on next Monday's show is Being Human, uh, An Unrepentant Memoir of a Disability Rights Activist by Judith Human. So it's kind of a play on words there. Her last name is H-E-U-M-A-N-N. And I saw her on The Daily Show a few months ago talking about um, this book. And I was very inspired and wanted to read her book talking about how she's been uh, a disability rights activist her whole life. So looking forward to reading this book and sharing it with you on next Monday's show. The book of the week from last week that I'll talk about tonight is The Genius of Birds by Jennifer Ackerman. And I loved this book. It was so fascinating, so interesting. Uh, as I mentioned last week when I was t- talking about reading this book, I like to include books that aren't just psychology related. The next one isn't obviously specifically related to psychology either because I think it always does expand my mind, which is interesting because we're talking about the mind and brains of birds in this book. And, and this one did exactly that. Uh, Jennifer Ackerman did a great job discussing birds. And I think... If you read this book, in my own experience, it'll teach you a lot of things about birds, how they think or how we try to understand their thinking, um, the incredible things they're capable of, but also just your love for birds will grow. I didn't dislike birds, um, but I liked them, but not something particularly strong where I was preoccupied with them. But it's interesting while reading this book and since then, uh, as I'm walking around or if I hear chirping or singing... I think about it differently because of this book, and I'll probably touch on that point at the end of uh, talking about it today, because it's interesting how reading about some, whatever it is, group, thing, uh, idea, it can change the way you think about that and make it more real to you. So I'll talk about it at the end of talking about the book itself. So again, The Genius of Birds by Jennifer Ackerman. And so she starts off the book talking about how in general, birds have had a bad rap when it came to intelligence and their brains. They were thought not to be very smart, just working in some automatic ways, repetitive ways. And we see this in even slurs that she talks about, things like bird brain. So if you call someone a bird brain, you're saying they're stupid, saying they essentially are small-brained, not very smart. And in general, we thought about birds and their thinking. We didn't think very highly of them. And, and throughout the book, she also explains reasons why this might be. Um, but recent research is showing us that birds are incredibly intelligent and do things that we didn't know they were capable of. And also they do things we definitely are not capable of. Um, and that itself can explain some of why we might have thought of them as not so intelligent. Because 
whoever is measuring intelligence, it's going to be biased by their definition. Now, when it comes to humans, we've seen this happen when certain cultural groups, for example, make IQ tests. So if you are an, a white American making an IQ test for minorities in this country or people in other countries, it might be impacted by the role of culture. So you might think these people are less intelligent, but essentially they're less good at taking your intelligence test. It's not necessarily a reflection of their intelligence. And so similarly, when we try to talk about or look at the intelligence of other animals, we have to be aware of the biases that come from us humans being the ones doing the examining. Of course, we're going to see things from our perspective. Can they solve problems we think are important? Can they observe things that are important to us? But of course, they live a different life and different things are beneficial to them. So if we look at it from our lens, we might be missing a lot about what is actually there. So when we've tried to measure their intelligence, unfortunately, we oftentimes we're not looking for the right things and we're affected by these historical um, issues that affected the way we thought of them as not very intelligent to begin with. So it was very fascinating for me. And like I said, it made me look at birds differently already. Um, it's not that I can tell you, I can notice which bird is which. And she mentions probably hundreds of bird species throughout the book. And most of them were new to me. Um, but still, there's a way that I think about them differently, which feels quite nice. So to begin with, um, as I mentioned, she talks about how bird brain was thought of as something negative, but maybe we're not quite right. And they're sometimes able to do amazing things. So throughout the book, one of the birds that comes up often is the New Caledonian crow. Uh, New Caledonia, it's an island in the South Pacific, I believe. And the crow there, you may be seeing a crow probably in your own neighborhood, but it's a relative of that crow. But these particular ones are known to be very intelligent in their ability to solve problems. And so she describes this one incident, which is essentially an experiment that was done with a new Caledonian crow, which was named 007, like James Bond, because he was kind of dark and handsome, so it made sense, but also very intelligent in how he was able to solve problems. And I'll describe to you what, what essentially was done. So they gave him a, a puzzle of sorts where if he wanted to reach the meat that he wanted, he had to solve this puzzle that needed eight steps, which is quite remarkable. You wouldn't think a bird can solve a puzzle. And by puzzle, I mean that he had to move different things, which I'll describe uh, or I'll read from the book, that were eight different steps, which shows he was able to, in some ways, think ahead. He was able to do something indirectly to get to a goal. So, of course, if we see something and we grab it, that's very easy. But to think, if I pull this lever, that'll bring up that thing that I want, that involves a different type of thinking. And really, it's quite remarkable. So let me read you this paragraph from the book, uh, The Genius of Birds by Jennifer Ackerman, describing uh, 007, a new Caledonian crow, solving this problem. So in the video, a dark, handsome, aptly named bird flies into the view settles on a perch and takes a few moments to scope out the situation. Then he flutters up to a branch that holds a stick hanging from a string, the first step in the puzzle. He pulls up the stick one string length at a time until he can grasp the stick with his beak. 
He drops down from perch to tabletop, hops over to the food chamber, and uses the stick to poke into the food chamber deep, chamber's deep horizontal hole to try to collect the treat. But the stick is too short, so he uses it instead to retrieve three stones from three separate boxes. These he drops one at a time into a hole at the top of a chamber containing a longer stick balanced on a seesaw. The weight of the three stones tilts the seesaw inside the box, releasing the long stick, which the bird takes back to the food chamber to lever out his meat. Uh, it's just incredible. And I'm sure it was hard to follow, but it's hard to understand exactly what it is. I actually um, wanted to watch the video before this book, uh, before I came on the air, but I didn't get to do that. I hopefully will later. But all of it took me about two and a half minutes. So I know it's hard to follow in some ways, but I wanted you to just get an idea of the different steps he had to take including trying things, trying to put a stick through a hole to get to his goal. That didn't work, so he realized he can use the stick for something else to try to move these stones that then would essentially get him closer to his goal. So just the fact that it was eight different complicated steps to solve this, his goal is quite remarkable, solving this puzzle. So intelligence that we probably didn't think a crow, a bird, was capable of, but we saw that they were. There's also uh, birds using tools in different ways, bending tools to make like a hook, which is rare. Uh, sometimes sharing that essential, if you want to call it technology, amongst one another. And that was quite fascinating that we're seeing that it's as if they have culture, really not, I shouldn't say as if, it's like a culture, which shows up in different parts of the book, that they're passing things on, that different regions might have different tools or even different songs that was kind of interesting so the same species with might which might have a similar type of song um, you might go in one region of the forest and it might be slightly different from a region somewhere else now maybe you won't be able to detect that yourself but people stud studying the the sound or the analyzing it at a deeper level can find slight differences and variations in how the birds are singing um, which is quite remarkable it's kind of like uh, if you go to different parts of America, you might find different accents or dialects. Or if you go to different parts of Iran, you can very easily identify different people with different types of accents. Similarly, we see that birds have that same thing. Uh, and that theme also goes throughout the book that, of course, there are ways that birds' intelligence is going to be different from ours, of course. But there's also a lot of parallels. We might have thought of them as so different from us, but there's a lot of ways that although we diverge, I think it's about 300 million years ago, from an evolutionary perspective, there's lots of overlaps in the ways that we do things. So that was quite remarkable, seeing the tool usage of birds, and there's lots of different ways that they use tools. There's a whole chapter called Twitter, which is kind of, of course, kind of a play like Twitter, the uh, app, but of course, birds tweet with their the sound they make and it was about socializing and how they're actually very adept at socializing and at times recognize different birds well and know which ones have been good to them which ones have been bad or even stories where birds would recognize people who had harmed them so for example scientists on a university campus who've maybe captured some of the birds later on if that person was walking on campus they maybe were attacked by other birds not even the ones that were then released because they were essentially telling each other about who's good and who's bad so we see that they have ways of communicating with each other important social information something that you might not think they're doing and one of the things you mentioned in the book in some ways is when you look at a bird to us at least 
even the ways they act, it looks like they're just reacting or moving very quick. And we wouldn't think of it in this way that they might be thinking in what to us might seem in a deeper way, like they're just uh, reacting to their environment. But we see that there's actually a lot more going on and there's ways that they even teach each other things um, that is quite remarkable. Uh, there was another chapter on, she called it in a way art, but it was talking about how some birds will, it was called the bird artist. Um, there's a, a bird called the bower bird, which will make these, the males will make these incredible, essentially structures. They'll gather rocks, especially the region she was talking a lot about. They like blue things, so they'll get a lot of blue things. Even sometimes, you know, it was something like a pacifier from a baby they probably stole from neighbors or something, um, or different items that were blue. And they arrange these structures, which are incredible. And I looked up some pictures online, and they're quite beautiful, that they would use to eventually attract a mate. And they would pay attention to things like symmetry. So... They were describing how the birds would bring something to add to their display, and then they would add it and take a few steps back, or probably more, to see from a distance what someone would see approaching their structure. So thinking about what someone else would see, uh, essentially in the sense a female bird would see when they look at their structure. So they're doing all this stuff, and it really is like a work of art. And then even when the female does come, she'll inspect the building that he's created. And then also he does a song and dance to try to attract her to further show his uh, suitability as a mate. And all of this to attract the mate to then hopefully have offspring with her. And even the way he has to interact, he should show strength, but he can't come on too strong or aggressively. She describes the story of one male, and it seemed like he was doing everything right, but he maybe moved too fast at one point and startled the female bird and she flew off. So he messed up his chances at least that time. And so in a way we can see what looks like art. And even she talks about, well, what is art? So would this be uh, described or defined as art? And I think it makes sense that we can see it that way, that it has some artistic elements to it. Of course, another important topic when we look at birds and some of the incredible things they're capable of is getting around or migrating. We know that birds can at times fly thousands of miles. And as she describes in that chapter, there's all these different theories of different ways that they do this, but we're not totally clear on how they manage these incredible feats because it's quite amazing. They'll at times, uh, they've done studies and they're kind of sound mean, but they'll take the birds and blindfold them or do something where they can't see what's happening or where they're going and move them hundreds or thousands of miles off of their course or where they were. And very often, many of those birds can still find either home or going back or going to the place they were migrating to. They adjust somehow and get there. And so there's lots of different ways. One is they might be able to detect electromagnetic waves or fields that the earth has, um, which we we can't measure ourselves as far as humans, but we can use devices that we've created to measure them, but they might have something internally in their brains that can do that. Uh, they might even use things like smell, which is amazing, but that each area might have a distinct smell that gives them an idea of where they are, especially maybe closer to home. They might have um, certain maps of things. They might use the stars. It's just amazing. And so what might be likely is that they use various systems at various times to get enough information to get them where they need to go. 
but they can do these incredible things with migration that really we humans are not capable of, and still we don't completely understand what they do uh, and how they do it. So that chapter was fascinating, See, seeing the ways that these birds are able to find their way either home. Homing pigeons, for example, will come back. Sometimes one person found their bird five years later after they were blown, uh, somehow taken off course or not able to come back. So that was quite interesting to see that. And then also bird song. Uh, you know, I was mentioning the chirping and the singing you might hear. And to us, it might sound pretty. It might sound annoying sometimes. Maybe you're trying to sleep and you hear a bird chirping. But that's their language. And Darwin himself said that it was the closest thing to human language that we have. And apparently he wasn't far off. There is a lot of parallels there. First of all, it can be very complex and communicate so many things. Um, but also recent research has found that the parts of the brain that are impacted or that we see um, are being used or activated when language is being learned, there's parallels between the brains of humans and the brains of birds, which is quite, quite amazing. Um, I watched this documentary uh, on Netflix about, I think it was called Babies on Babies, and it actually talked about this as well. And so by studying birds, we might be able to better understand our own language development uh, and vice versa, which is quite fascinating. But so even their songs are something very meaningful, which again, to a human, let's say me, who's out, if I was in a forest, it would all sound just like sounds, or maybe some of them are nice, but I, I wouldn't have the intelligence to understand the depth of what is going on. And this is the problem when we try to understand the intelligence of someone, or especially some other being, another animal, is that we don't quite get everything that's going on. So something that seems meaningless and like nonsense might actually be quite significant, but we just can't understand it. So intelligence is one of those things that we can't quite uh, define. There's no clear definition of intelligence. We think we know what it means. We think we understand it. But uh, I think a, a quote in the book was, there's, there's as many different definitions for intelligence as there are experts. And so if we try to say if a bird is intelligent or not, of course, we're measuring it against how we humans view things, which is going to be the wrong lens. But we have no other really option because that's the only way we can see things. However, we can start to try to understand what might be beneficial to the bird. What are they able to do that we are not? And so I thought that was really, really uh, fascinating, amazing. I have a few more thoughts on the book, but I am at a commercial break. So what I'm going to do now is uh, take a commercial break, come back, continue talking about The Genius of Birds by Jennifer Ackerman. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delacqui. We'll be right back. back. So I'm talking about the book, The Genius of Birds by Jennifer Ackerman. I talked about it in the last segment in detail. I wanted to share a few last thoughts about it in this segment, though. So it was really fascinating looking at, you know, this, this chapter, The Mapping Mind, I was talking about their ability to navigate and migrate. And even if they're taken off course, finding a way back. And we're, we're still figuring it out. How do they do these incredible things? Uh, again, sense of smell, using the sun, using the stars, all sorts of things, and probably using them in combination in different ways. It's quite remarkable. And so I was very impressed and in awe and really humbled by looking at what birds are capable of doing, of how much I didn't understand 
what they can do. And of course, we're still trying to understand what they can do. And this is quite interesting. And you, I always appreciate the scientists that are trying to better understand our world in different ways. And definitely uh, the ornithologists, I hope I'm saying that right, the study of birds, all the different scientists in that field who are trying to better understand birds, what they're doing. And sometimes they do very creative types of experiments to try to figure out what's happening. Sometimes it's quite sad. You know, you hear about them disconnecting a certain nerve and then maybe that makes the bird not able to find its way home and things. And so there's those casualties, which always there's that blurry line of what's okay and trying to understand animals or even do research and studying them and not hurting them either. Um, so at times you'd read these studies and I didn't always like how they were treating the birds, although I understood their goal, but I thought it could be a little bit harsh. Nonetheless, uh, there's so many great scientists doing great work in many fields, but including studying birds and better understanding them. Uh, the last chapter was about how good certain birds are at adapting in new environments, like even uh, especially the sparrow. And the sparrow is find, found almost all over the world in various cities. It was interesting. Uh, one of the a few people said that they can understand how widespread they are, the sparrow, because they can hear them chirping in so many different um, types of uh, newscasts. So they're listening to newscasts in various cities around the world, and you can hear sparrows in the background. But they're very good at finding their ways and, and into new areas and somehow surviving. Um, and But she was talking about how there's that aspect, but also we have to be aware of how we are changing the environment and how that's affecting birds. And unfortunately, there are some estimates, I forgot the timeline, but something like 50% of birds might go extinct based on how humans are affecting the environment. So even things like climate change, especially, that's a big one. Uh, it's affecting the temperature. And a lot of times birds, they can be very sensitive to living in certain regions where it has to have certain temperature for them to survive. Um, and if not, they, they could be in trouble. And sometimes they have to move. Even they're moving. There, there was one species she was talking about moving up a mountain, essentially. So let's say they were, you know, 1,500 feet up. But because it got warmer, they had to go up to 1,600 feet and going up and up. And she was saying, essentially, they're getting to the top of the mountain. And then where else can they go from there? So it's very sad. And another reminder that we um, hopefully will do more to take care of our planet in general for our own benefit, but of course, for so many animals that are affected by this too. So I thought that was uh, interesting and of course uh, disheartening in a way, but a reminder and another motivator to hopefully do more to help uh, help birds. Uh, these incredible creatures, again, I thought it was so interesting for me to learn more about them and I highly recommend it. Now, what I wanted to talk about was, as I mentioned in the first segment, when I've seen birds ever since I started this book last week, I feel something different towards them. I'm trying to understand them or see them or recognize, you know, we, we think of pigeons and she talked about pigeons in the book. Sometimes they're called uh, flying rats, something very uh, derogatory. Although I guess that's saying rats are bad. Now <laughs> I got to catch myself there. But um, we talk about them in, in a negative way that they're, you know, we think about them as these kind of um, maybe stupid or they're just pecking around. They're probably not very smart, but they actually can be quite intelligent. We might not understand it. We might not see it, but they can be very intelligent. So I've seen pigeons around when I'm walking. I've seen crows and I have such a different feeling towards them um, that they are very intelligent. They're doing so many things that 
we maybe don't understand or we underestimated. And so my feeling towards them has changed. I liked birds. I wasn't anti-bird. I thought they were nice and beautiful, but I didn't have too much attention on them. But by learning more about them in this deeper way, I feel more connected to them in a way, or I see them in a different light. And so at times when we're talking about human beings and different groups, we'll say, when you learn about a new group more, let's say you meet someone from a different race that you've ever met or sexuality or whatever the diversity is we're talking about, when you get to know them better in a deeper way, we'll say that it humanizes them. And you might realize, gosh, I thought uh, people from that group were bad people. But now that I actually am meeting someone or some people from that group, I realize they're just like me or they're human. And because of that, I care about them more, or it's harder for me to dehumanize them, to not think about them as human and deserving equal rights. And because of that, that gives me a different feeling towards them. And so this is one of the best ways we can combat things like racism, sexism, um, discrimination related to ability. And the book I'm going to read this week is from a disability rights activist, Judith Human, and I was very inspired by her story that I saw. And also I realized I hadn't read a book related to disability rights or anything on that topic. And I thought it was very important for myself and also to talk about it on the show. But when we meet someone and we interact with them, and we see a deeper level of them, we recognize their humanity, that they're human. Now it's interesting because this book, and I also want to be careful. I thought about this a lot before I, I said it today, because it could seem like I'm saying, oh, well, some groups of humans, it's just like animals. And of course, I'm not making that comparison. Actually, I'm taking it a step back and saying we should look at all living beings in a positive way. So it's not to say we're like animals. I'm like an animal. I am an animal, essentially, right? There's no really difference. We, we've made a very clear difference for ourselves that we're human beings that are something separate from animals, but we're part of the animal kingdom. And so any living being is worthy of our respect, and to be treated right. But if we don't know much about them, they're just this thing, oh, these pesky birds or whatever the, the animal or thing might be. And so I felt that same thing reading this book was like, I felt a deeper connection to them. So uh, I know we can't say humanize when we're talking about a bird. And the word I thought of, which is kind of a play on words, is realize, making it more real and making me realize that there's more to the bird or birds in general than I knew before. And so that changes my feeling towards them, my care towards them. I might be more mindful of, okay, well, if they're doing deforestation, all the animals, but the birds might stick out more. And of course, I hope I would think about the other living creatures as well. And so it was interesting to have that experience with this. I hadn't, I don't think I've read a book in these last four years for the show that was specifically on a different animal, um, like this one. Maybe I'd have to think about it, but anyway, um, and so it was interesting that feeling when I see a bird, I can't look at them the same way. And so this is the same thing about anyone or any group that we're thinking about. And again, not to say people are like animals or in a way saying we are, but not in the way of disrespecting them. Because if we look throughout history, very often any group that was persecuted or any time there was a genocide, very often one of the ways we dehumanize a group of people is to compare them to animals, either animals. Um, 
insects or rats or something we think is dirty or even apes. Unfortunately, still you see these types of connections or people trying to say these things because we use this to dehumanize a group, meaning that we don't need to care about them. They don't deserve to be treated equally. So that's why um, I'm being careful in how I say that, but hopefully it makes sense that what I'm saying is we can respect all living beings. So when we don't like a particular group of people, we tend to think it's because we're right and they're wrong, we're good and they're bad. But actually we have it reversed. If we don't like a group of people, that's something about us that's wrong. If I don't like some people, if I don't think some people deserve human rights, then there's something missing or wrong about me, not something about them. That's why I'm so happy to read this book this week on dis the, the rights of the disabled because um, many times we don't think of certain people that are going through certain things and because of that we don't take them into account and we want to take everyone into account as we're building our society as we're doing what we do. I've mentioned this a few times during this period of the coronavirus pandemic that as we try to rush back to normal which we're all wanting to do um, we don't want to rush back to the negative things that were going on. People were suffering and are still suffering in ways before the pandemic started, and we don't want to forget these people. We don't want to um, neglect them when we go back to normal. And so you might not be of a particular group, whatever that is, but I hope you can recognize that they deserve to be taken care of. You know, I didn't uh, think I would talk about this, but today I got to do something very, it was very sweet. Um, so uh, School on Wheels is an organization here in Los Angeles that provides tutoring and educational services for um, children who are experiencing homelessness. And I've had the opportunity to volunteer with them for, I don't know if it's five or six years now, and one of the best decisions I made was to get started with volunteering with them. Um, but what was very sad for me and what's been very sad is we, I can't see the kids during the coronavirus pandemic. Last time I saw them was close to the middle of March, right before the schools closed. And after, after that, I haven't seen them, but they reached out to us, Mr. Jason from uh, school on wheels that we could write letters to them. So today I got to write a letter to a child experiencing homelessness. They said, we don't know who's going to write to who, so make it kind of general. But it was very sweet and uh, process, and I got actually, I was nervous about it, like I wanted to make it good. So I wrote it in a note on my phone and revised it, and I wrote it, and I have really bad handwriting, unfortunately, but it's all I could do. So I wrote it out, and I sent it to someone, but it's someone I don't know, and it's someone going through something, homelessness, that I can say I'm fortunate that I haven't had to experience it. And by fortunate, I mean also lucky, not that I've necessarily done something. I've been given a lot of things that other people have not. Um, and different groups, including people who experience homelessness, can be looked down upon. If you, I don't want to assume you're thinking that way, but we know that society can forget them. And we think, for example, they either deserve to be there, they um, did something wrong to get there. And of course, if people... Uh, even if you say the adults did something, it's much more complicated than that. But what I always say is, how can you say a, a homeless child deserves to be homeless? What what child? How can we say they've done something to deserve that? And to say life is not fair is not enough to me. Because yes, life is not fair in that everything doesn't work out exactly equally and everyone gets a fair chance. But we can try to make it more fair. 
So if we have resources to take care of people and we don't use those resources to help people, something is wrong. If we have houses to home homes for the homeless people and we let them be on the street, that reflects poorly on us. So we might think we live in a very wealthy country, but we have to measure our wealth based on how the worst people are doing, not just overall GDP or things of that sort. Um, so reading this book, as I was saying, it's not to compare animals to people, but in a way it is that we're all equal. We should all, we should look at all living beings, but all people are equal too. And if you might think of someone very different from you, try to remember that it's just because you don't know them or understand them to see that these human beings are just like you, human beings like you who deserve to be taken care of and who want the same things. They want to feel safe and secure and have everything they need and they almost always just want to be with their family and be able to do good things. Um, so it was quite an experience reading this book and I um, really recommend it. Again, I went off a tangent there about other things, but if you have any interest in wildlife or even if you don't, I'd highly recommend the book, The Genius of Birds by Jennifer Ackerman. Let's go into our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So uh, one of the things we've been experiencing a lot these days is things like FaceTime and Zoom calls. And I myself experienced that I was getting uh, a lot more tired doing my video sessions than I was doing sessions in person. And I noticed this. It took me a while to even be aware of it. You know, we try to be in touch with ourselves and our bodies and what we're going through. I thought maybe I was just being tired from, um, you know, things with the coronavirus, feeling more sluggish. But I actually talked to a few colleagues and one of them told me, you know, I'm getting much more tired from doing video sessions than I am doing sessions in person or I used to get when we'd see clients in my office. And I was like, you know, that makes sense. And so I talked to a few other therapists. Most of them agreed. I had one or two that actually didn't, but uh, most of them agreed that they felt like doing these video sessions were more draining. And so I mentioned this to one of my friends who is a psychologist and also a frequent guest on the show, Dr. Jennifer Galvin. And then she sent me an article uh, from the BBC called The Reason Zoom Calls Drain Your Energy. And I thought this was a really interesting article because it, it kind of addressed some of those issues that I was bringing up. So yeah, why are Zoom calls more draining or even Zoom meetings or whatever it is than, than regular ones. So they gave a few reasons why. Now, the, one of the first ones that came up was very important for me because I realize this as a therapist, where of course you're talking to the client, but you're also paying a lot of attention to nonverbal cues. And being in the room with someone, you get that a lot easier than you do looking on the video. And so you have to pay even more attention. I realized I was even more focused on the, the person. And so because of that, I had to pay even more attention. And I think it, it takes more out of me to try to get that from them, to try to understand them as well or as best I can, but as well as I would in a regular session. So there is that, that we're trying to pay more attention to the body language, tone, uh, facial expressions. And that is actually more difficult than when we are in person. And I've definitely experienced that um, as a therapist. And even related to that, as I was saying about the focusing, something I've noticed is um, 
sometimes pain behind my eyes or headache. So I don't know if uh, people listening have had those experiences too, but that could be happening uh, from straining, looking at a screen more, and also things like the blue light that comes off of a uh, screen, computer, whatever it is. And, and it's funny, I mentioned this to a few friends. Oh, you know, maybe I should look into getting those blue light glasses. And, and of course, as is common in our day and age, on my Instagram and Facebook, I got all these ads for blue light uh, removing glasses. And so I have lots of choices I can make, but also it can be harder on our eyes to be constantly staring at a screen rather than looking at people face to face. They also mentioned that just the fact that we have to be working in a way um, wherever we are at home. It's kind of makes it difficult. It's a lot easier to have different places where different aspects of ourself come out, something they call the self-complexity theory. We have multiple aspects to our personality, but now it's like all of those aspects of ourselves have to be confined and are in the same place. So you're at work and you're playing and you're being romantic and you're with your kids, all the things you're doing are in one location, that itself can be a little bit difficult. And so I actually go to my office to see my clients, and by see, I mean uh, on the video screen, um, because of that, to have that space where it's different. I go there, I don't have to see anyone, really no one is there in the building, and I go straight to my office and I do my sessions there. Also, even for myself and for the clients to be in the same space that we usually are together, I think that also helps. Uh, but again, it is definitely more draining. Now, another interesting one um, is that you can see yourself when you're doing these video calls, and that itself can be draining or take more of your attention. Now, this is really funny. So if you're listening either on the podcast or on the radio, uh, right now I'm doing Instagram Live, and this is probably the fourth or fifth time I'm doing it, and I've already noticed that I feel a little bit less focused at moments because I can see myself on the screen that I'm looking at. And of course, even less focused because people write comments, very nice of you to want to engage and be part of the process. But especially when I'm trying to keep a train of thought, it can be challenging. And so when I read that part, it was very interesting. It takes some of our energy. And of course, when we see ourselves, um, not necessarily in a narcissistic way, but often we are looking at ourselves because we you know, usually don't get to see yourself doing most things you're in the mirror, you look at yourself for, you know, a few seconds or minutes or whatever, getting ready. But then when you're doing most things, when you're talking, rarely do you see yourself talking and what you look like. And so this can be distracting for us. We look at ourselves and get a little bit, you know, I look like that. Do I make that face? Do I do that when I'm trying to uh, make a point? Why am I, you know, frowning like that? Uh, this lighting is bad or this lighting is good maybe and you might take a quick screenshot because you like how you're looking but that itself takes some energy because you have to focus on yourself and that will be distracting to monitor yourself in a way you feel like you're always on like I have to be aware of that you're on the screen and let's say you're in a meeting someone's talking you get the sense of course people can look at you but everyone's looking at the person talking and so if you're not talking you can be a little bit more relaxed or you don't have that feeling of being on the spot but when you're on a video call everyone sees everyone unless you um, remove your camera or things like that and so you have this feeling of having to be on the whole time so it's a little bit more draining because of that and even the um, some of the people they talk to in this article they mentioned that we should make it more okay for people to turn off their cameras 
uh, while they're on the calls. And I'm sure a lot of people would like that. Probably you would do something um, to, you know, maybe you'd be productive in some other way. Of course, multitasking tends to make us less efficient, but nonetheless, it could be good to not have to feel like you're on if you're not the one who is talking. And I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, another issue is the technological issues. Of course, it's kind of these funny things that start to come up of there's glitches. Is it your internet? Is it my internet? Uh, what's happening? And these things take away from the ways we usually talk to each other when there's even a little bit of a delay. Even I've worked with clients in the middle of a sentence that might be very important, all of a sudden it freezes. So they're telling me something and when my mother did, and then they freeze for a second and they come back and I miss the whole thing and I have to stop them and say, can you go back and repeat that part? I lost you for a few seconds. Of course, they're going to lose, you know, the moment of where they were in, they were going somewhere, especially in therapy, of course, you're trying to get to certain places that can be very deep. And if you have to come back up, it can be hard to go back there again. But even just in general, it can affect the flow of the conversation. So so the conversations are taking more effort because you might be thinking, well, I'm just talking to someone. Why should it be harder than talking about to someone in person? But it does take more because of these types of things. It's kind of a challenge to talk to someone. Not only that, the delays have an effect. So sometimes there's slight delays in the communication. And they did a study, um, I think it was in Germany, but wherever it was, they did a study and they found that even with like a one second, 1.2 second delay in the communication from what would be normal, people appeared less friendly or less focused to us. And this makes sense and it points to how delicate a dance it is when we communicate with one another. You know, some of the things we take for granted when we're talking uh, with someone is the ways that we talk, the ways we respond, the ways that we can go back and forth, understand each other, read the cues verbally and non-verbally. Even um, the ways we talk, we have an idea of when the person is going to stop talking so that we can start talking. This was really interesting, a book I read maybe two years ago, I think it was called How We Talk, and I forget the author's name, maybe Epstein. That's the first name that pops into my head. But the book was called How We Talk. And they looked at how when people are having a conversation, and if you measure the time between when one person stops talking and the other person starts talking, it's not enough time for someone to be able to hear the silence and then generate speech, which tells us that the person is already anticipating when the person is going to stop talking to have an idea of when they should start talking. So they essentially start the process before the person has stopped, which is quite, quite amazing. So we can understand that when we're doing a Zoom call, a FaceTime call, a video call, we lose some of these subtleties and these intricacies. And it's going to take a little bit more effort to communicate. Um, of course, now this being said, this technology is amazing. Uh, you know, think about if this pandemic happened like 20, 25 years ago, we would have a lot harder time staying in touch. But very nicely, we can video with each other, see each other's faces. You know, I have friends with babies or family members that you don't get to see, especially babies. You want to see them grow up. And at least it's nice to see their face. Actually, uh, here on the Instagram Live, I've seen um, Melody, a friend of mine is on her and Narimon have a beautiful daughter, Naya. And I've, I saw her once when we FaceTimed and they also posted pictures and videos of her so you get to see her grow up but it's so nice so of course this technology is amazing and we're so grateful for it but we're seeing in a way how important 
face-to-face contact and communication is, which is very interesting for me because when we think of uh, technology, and we, you know, we, it's very cliche to say, oh, kids are on their phones too much. We're on our phones too much. It's disconnecting us. And of course, we also think it's connecting us, but it's a reminder of how much face-to-face communication can be different from texting or sending messages or even FaceTiming and that we really can never replace it. Now, in a time like what we're experiencing right now, where we can't be next to each other physically, having FaceTime, having Zoom calls is amazing and gives us an opportunity to connect as close as we can. But I think many of us, and myself very much included, are recognizing how much being face-to-face with people. Of course, I was mentioning it in my practice, and I feel that difference, but especially socially and with people, um, you know, our friends, family, loved ones, how different it is and how much we miss that right now. I know I'm definitely missing that, being around lots of people, of course, hugging people, touching the physical touch that we have when we're next to each other, all these things we unfortunately are missing out on. And I think we're becoming aware of that, that we are feeling a disconnection. We are feeling um, as much as we're trying to connect and it's great. And I myself and many people have experienced talking to, FaceTiming with people that we haven't um, been in touch with. So it's nice. We're connecting in other ways that, or with people we maybe wouldn't have before, but we don't want to lose sight of the other part of how important it is. And we don't want to take for granted being face to face with one another. And so I hope that when we uh, can once again be next to each other, I'm sure we'll be less likely to take that for granted. And just another reminder that, of course, all these technologies might facilitate communication in different ways. You can email with someone to write them a note and communicate about business from thousands of miles away. You can call, FaceTime. All these things are wonderful. But it's interesting that uh, face-to-face communication, it's a type of technology, if you want to call it that, that really can never be replaced. And that's another thing we're noticing in this pandemic is being together with our loved ones, some of you may be home now with your husbands, wives, kids, more than you ever have before. It's also creating an experience that you maybe realize how important it is that I get to now be face to face with you. I thought it was enough to see you just a little bit here and there or uh, text you, call you. But this face to face experience is something quite remarkable. So this article was interesting, and it's in the BBC um, called The Reason Zoom Calls Drain Your Energy. The author is Manu Jiang. It's from April 22nd, uh, 2020. So if you've been feeling that, as I definitely have, that being on all these Zoom calls is draining, think about how you're managing that. Don't do so many of them. Um, uh, Maybe turn off the camera. Be aware of how it's affecting your eyes. And of course, when you're looking at screens so much, that's going to affect a lot of things, including even your sleep. If you're looking at screens a lot, and especially as it's getting closer to your bedtime, it makes it a lot harder for you to fall asleep. So um, I've noticed that too, that during this time, one of the consequences that's happened in a way, an unintended consequence is that I'm looking at screens more. I'm watching a little bit more TV, but also a few hours a day, at least I'm talking to clients using video and that's definitely a strain on my eyes and and exposes me to a lot of that and like i said i can feel that draining experience that it's happening um from that and so this article did a great job of explaining that and so thank you to dr jennifer galvin who shared that article with me i hope you will check it out if you uh, haven't already 
All right, we're getting close to the end of tonight's show. Let me tell you the book again. It's Being Human, an Unrepentant Memoir of a Disability Rights Activist by Judith Human. So I'm really excited to read this book and share it with you on next Monday's show. And also, as always, please send me your books. People always ask me, how do you pick your books? Someone asked me today on um, Instagram. And really, it's just a hodgepodge way of buying books here and there. I always have some books at home. But also, people send me recommendations all the time. I'm very grateful for that. So please, if you have any books that you think would be good for me to read for the show, you know, message me on Instagram, Facebook, uh, Twitter, whatever it might be, and maybe I'll, I'll read your book that you recommend. All right, that brings us to the end of tonight's show. Thank you to Amir, who's here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Jolak. We have a wonderful night. <laughs>